It was odd, he thought, as he leant against the wet trench side, how the flecks of chalk loomed in the dark. Nearby, one of his men coughed, and he was reminded of the cows in the winter-darkened sheds on his father's farm, the cattle's hacking expulsions as they chomped through the dusty hay. What would his father be doing at 5.54 on a November morning, standing, he supposed, under the stable porch, much as he did every morning, telling Thompson the bailiff the jobs to be done by the men that day. He wished that he was there, in the untroubled English countryside. Instead, he faced the coming light in France, and the light was now definitely coming. He could see the first smear of grey in the eastern sky, he checked his watch for the umpteenth time. The minute hand had turned a full revolution. He could not linger any longer. A deep breath, and he began walking with leaden legs along the greasy duckboards in the trench bottom. The men were standing sentinel stiff along the fire step, their bayonets fixed to their rifles. He had been tempted to make a speech, but doubted whether he could, in the circumstances, emulate his performance as Henry V in the school's production of the Shakespeare history. Was it only six months ago that he had still been at school? No oratory then, but a quiet encouraging word to each white face of the platoon as it loomed out of the dark. A refrain of, good luck to you too, sir, was whispered back. For young Haddon, he had a joke. With that ugly mug, Haddon, you don't need a rifle. One look at you and the Germans will run for it. Such bally bad jokes, he told. But everyone laughed under their steaming breath, glad to have their mind taken off the duty of the morning. And for Manning, there was a reassuring adjustment of the helmet. Manning, who was old enough to be his father. At the far end of his section, he shook hands with Corporal Probert, and told him to make sure any malingerers came along with the rest. A clerk in a Monmouthshire colliery, Probert was the same age as himself, nineteen, but with creases of work already around his eyes. His conversations with Probert about the pit and its surrounding terraced houses, he realised, had opened up a country as foreign to him as France itself. A good chap, Probert. They had been, were, a good team. Over the last weeks he had caught the corporal watching him like a hawk, not harshly to criticise, but benignly to learn. Front-line battalions used up public school subalterns by the score, and very soon they would have to start commissioning men like Probert, even if they didn't have pucker manners. He'd suggested Probert for a commission to the CO only yesterday morning, Making his skidding way back along the trench, he heard behind him one of the men murmur, That young Mr. Lewis, he's a cool one. We could do with a few more officers like him. If only they knew how the fear was drying his mouth. Someone lurched out in front of him. I can't do it. I'm ill. I'm ill. Reeves. We've been over this, Reeves. The M.O. says there's nothing wrong with you. You're going over with everyone else. He kept his voice low. There was no sense in alerting the Germans a hundred yards away on the other side of the tangled wire forest of no man's land. 
Reeves came closer, his eyes wild and wide, and was about to blurt out something more when the officer interrupted. I'll shoot you myself if you don't pipe down and go over with the rest. Someone said, you tell him, sir. Reeves backed away, cursing into the shadow wall of the trench. The subaltern finished his last walk up and down the platoon and resumed his position in the centre. Another look at the watch. It was now 5.59 on the 13th of November, 1916, in the Somme Valley. What time is it, sir? Obsessive asking about time, matched only by his obsessive watch-watching. He surreptitiously took the flask out of his pocket. He had already given the men their tot of rum. The whisky obliterated the trench's stink of fear and damp, and comforted as it burned down to his gullet. Gosh, it was cold, even with the whisky. Anxiously, he touched his tunic pocket, where he kept the photograph of his parents and sister inside Horace's odes. He had left a letter to his family, only to be opened in the event of my death, with the adjutant. Along with the letter were his sketches of birds on the Somme. Last week, he had seen a snow bunting in no man's land. 